Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the nightmare scenario for the Pentagon for the rest of the fiscal year. There would have to either be a ton of anomalies that would allow them to spend the money differently, or it would just really set things back by so far. So doing a full year CR for the Department of Defense is just unfathomable. Training is the key for better spending decisions for vendors and agencies. There's been a lot of turnover in the acquisition workforce, and that would be a huge, huge benefit for for contractors, for customer agencies, and for GSA at the end of the day. And a sea change in teaching employees cyber dangers. We've been trying to move away from education into awareness so users are more aware of what's going on both on their home computers and personal devices, as well as what's happening here in the office. It's Monday, February 7th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. A new software modernization strategy from the Defense Department should speed up the way the military codes new software. The strategy is the third major software policy document from the department recently. The Pentagon's chief software officer, Jason Weiss, tells FedScoop one goal of the strategy is uniting the department's 29 software factories to create, quote, enterprise shared services. Technology leaders across the Defense Department are promising changes to the hardware problems an Air Force staffer wrote about on LinkedIn. Pentagon CIO John Sherman, Acting Principal Deputy CIO Kelly Fletcher, Air Force CIO Lauren Nausenberger, Army CIO Raj Iyer, and Navy CIO Aaron Weiss all signed on to a LinkedIn post Friday committing to addressing the issues in what's now called the Fix Our Computers post. That post by the Director of Operations for the Air Force and MIT Artificial Intelligence Accelerator, Michael Kanan, cited long load times for software and outdated hardware as just a few of the problems DOD personnel face in getting their jobs done. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. IT Mod Week is now less than three weeks away. It's coming February 28th through March 4th. More than 100 events will happen around D.C. Lots of government and industry speakers and new things added to the calendar all the time. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. March 11th appears to be the date a new continuing resolution would expire. That means Congress will prolong the agony of the current CR for program managers and financial managers across the executive branch. Tom Harker is president of the Harker Group. He's former chief financial officer of the Navy, former acting Navy secretary, and former acting undersecretary of defense comptroller. Tom, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. It's great to talk to you again. What do you see as the biggest challenge for both financial managers and program managers as we get into this extended, extended CR season? Welcome. Thanks, Francis. I appreciate you having me here to talk about this uh, important event that's going on in everyone's life right now. Uh, The biggest challenge for the financial managers and for the program managers is the lack of flexibility that comes with being under a continuing resolution. Uh, You're limited. You can't have increases in your production rate. You can't move money um, around. You have to stick with the way things were appropriated last year. So if you were planning on building five aircraft last year and 10 aircraft this year, you can't increase that rate of production, which really slows down our ability to uh, accomplish the acquisition tasks that all the program managers are having. Also, with the operating materials and expenses, you're stuck with 
inflation, which is impacting your budget, and yet you're stuck with last year's budget. So you don't have the money available to pay all of your bills. So you really have to pick and choose what you pay. Uh, you have to really work the obligations. And frequently, this really affects the contracting officers. They're stuck making short-term contracts, which means they have to do rework. So they'll let a contract for the period of the CR or maybe a little bit longer, but then they have to go back in and do another contracting action, which, as we all know, takes a lot of time. What tools does the CFO have to help the back office people, the IT people? I'll I'll put you back in OSD and uh, you sit down with John Sherman and try to war game how to manage this for the next couple of weeks or months. And I'm not assuming that you haven't talked about it before this point in the fiscal year, of course. But as this continues to spiral, what do those leaders do? What What happens in that room among those leaders to figure out how to proceed? It really comes down to a lot of communication between the staff and the budget office with all of the different program offices, managing the timing of when awards need to be made, um, how long you can keep going without having to cut someone off, uh, whether they can accomplish things uh, with a lower burn rate or a lower spend rate, and looking at how you can maximize the few flexibilities that you do have during the continuing resolutions to still be able to accomplish the most critical missions. Are there questions that acquisition IT personnel should be asking the CFO that maybe they don't think of, that maybe it doesn't seem like uh, top of mind? Or have we walked down this road so many times in the last, geez, 10 or 15 years, I guess we're into this, um, that that's pretty much all plowed ground? It's relatively plowed ground. We've had more continuing resolutions than we've had budgets on time. I mean, there have been less than a handful of budgets on time in the last 25 years, uh, so that it's really more frequently to have continuing resolutions, although not always quite this long. Um, the challenge that the, um, the program managers are facing is how do they manage their own risk of their program? And the challenge that the budget people are facing is how do they manage the risk of the enterprise? So if I'm a program manager and I need to have money available in June to award a contract, that money doesn't need to be saved for me. It could be used for somebody else with the hope that we'll get our appropriation by June. Um, The flip side of that is if I have an award that needs to be made in early March, I need that money. And so this is where the budget officers need to have that visibility into um, the timelines of the contracts and at the same time be talking about risk and working with all of the people uh, across the various portfolios. Some of the money can be moved inside a portfolio. So say John Sherman or Aaron Weiss, they have money in their IT budget. They, They can move for other IT projects. But the challenge is moving it outside of those portfolios. And there's only very limited things that can be done there. As you're describing all of this, Tom, it strikes me that I might be asking these questions all wrong. I might be asking these questions from the perspective of today's February 7th, and we're thinking about a CR expiring next week and the next one running till the middle of March. I, I, I might not be giving you and your colleagues nearly enough credit for understanding, as you say, we've been doing more uh, CRs than we've been doing on-time appropriations. So what does the macro level planning for this look like? Or what should it look like in your view, given the reality of the situation? So what the government does is they try to schedule contracts to have option periods that end or where you award new option periods in the months of you know February, March, April, May, June timeframe. Uh, there's a requirement for the DOD to have 80% of their funds obligated by the end of uh, June. And so there's a strict timeline with regards to getting funds out the door. 
and so they can't wait until the end of the year, but they also don't want to do it too earlier in the year because then the funds won't be there because you'll be on a continuing resolution. So their goal is to try to get those awards sequenced and have some of the flexibilities that this allows them to manage the CR. And it's kind of like uh, in golf, if you're playing to the slice, you know, you're going to slice. So you line up a little bit different. That's how they adjust the uh, contracts this way. Uh, I played to the slice to the extent that I wound up just not even bothering to go on the course anymore. Obviously, the best solution is Congress gets its act together, no more CRs. But short of that, is there something out there that could pretend a, a better outcome for the financial managers, program managers across government town? I think right now the big fear is that they would do a full year-long CR. And that's happened in the past for the civilian agencies, but it's not something that the Department of Defense has ever done. And when you look at the impact that that would have on the Department of Defense, it would be taking away you know, close to $50 billion worth of budget authority because of challenges around production rate increases, um, timing of different things, and having money in the wrong accounts based on previous years. So there would have to either be a ton of anomalies that would allow them to spend the money differently or it would just really set things back by so far. So doing a full year CR for the Department of Defense is just unfathomable. One of the unusual things potentially about this year too, Tom, is it strikes me inflation is something that was obviously not accounted for in the fiscal 2022 budget. And so it would really be crushing in 23 for the department, I would think. Oh, yes, absolutely, Francis. It's one where the inflation that we've had over the last year is already killing budgets. And so even if there's any growth in the budget, like the Armed Services Committee provided a significant amount of growth for DOD, but the vast majority of that, those authorized dollars would go to combat inflation. So there's not really the growth that you really need in the current scenario with China and Russia and the, the challenges that DOD faces right now. Tom Harker, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you back on the program. Thanks, Francis. It's great being here. You can read more about the CR machinations in Congress in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Inflation isn't just affecting agencies, it's affecting the contractors those agencies rely on. And it's affecting the vehicles contractors and agencies use to work together. Roger Waldron is president of the Coalition for Government Procurement. Roger, welcome. It's great to have you back on the program. You write recently, GSA's multiple award schedule program is vulnerable to the impact of inflation. How's the multiple award schedule vulnerable? And what's the impact that that has on both agencies and the vendors that are on the schedules? Welcome. Well, first, uh, Francis, uh, thanks for having me on the show. Um, I appreciate it. The schedules program is vulnerable because it goes to uh, the ability of contractors to successfully uh, support agency mission. And what we're seeing um, is a gap between the commercial market and the schedules program widening uh, from a pricing perspective. You know, our members report it takes months to get uh, modifications to address price increases, price increases that are being driven by the commercial market. Everything has gone up, transportation materials, products, and contractors are, cu- are, are being squeezed because their, ske- their schedule prices aren't changing. Um, at the same time, their acquisition cost for that product is increasing significantly. Um, and without the government adjusting to that reality, uh, contractors are losing money, literally, uh, and performing their government contracts. So where does that lead? That leads to contractors taking product off contract that will harm the schedules program, harm its ability to support agency mission, 
Um, so it, it's uh, GSA needs to think seriously about how to expedite decision making in this area. There's two impacts that you write about on government customers of the vendors that are suffering from what you're talking about. You write in the short term, inflation can give rise to less than optimum performance in meeting contract requirements. In the long term, they threaten the health of the federal government's industrial base and associated supply chain. You talked about the effect on the industrial base a moment ago. What's the effect on the supply chain long term uh, as far as the that inflation threatening the health of that supply chain, Roger. Well, if uh, you know, from a government's perspective, from the government's perspective as a customer, the that the more you know they delay um, addressing the price increases, um, and in fact, one of the things GSA has done is said, "Oh, we'll let you have a price increase for six months." So, if literally it takes months and months to get a price increase, then oh, by the way, you got to go through that process again. Ultimately. You know, there's there's a real significant concern, as you know, Francis, that contractors are leaving the federal market. Um, contractors are are not going to participate in this market if they can't, you know, make a reasonable you know profit, and 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 their margins aren't addressed. And this isn't just in the product area; this is also in services areas. We're hearing from our our, our members with regard to you know the the labor rates on contracts, and you know. People, there's a demand for people, right? And there's a shortage of workforce. You know, uh, what you're paying folks, skilled folks, is increasing, you know, to keep in pace with inflation. At the same time, GSA is, you know, and I've written about this before, is seeking, you know, 20, 30 percent, you know, rate reductions on rates that had previously been fair and reasonable during an era of inflation. It makes no um, business sense. And ultimately, so it and and the biggest thing, the Biden administration priorities, small businesses, right? You're gonna you you're gonna push small businesses out of the federal marketplace and out of the schedules program. And again, back to the industrial base. The industrial base is gonna be harmed. People can't make you know can't make a reasonable living, you know, at prices that are below you know their acquisition cost. Um, it, it's simple. It's simple economics in a lot of ways. It's a red alert right now. We're in red alert territory. Uh, you write, the larger and ever-growing effect of inflation should prompt GSA to develop a framework for the streamlined administration, assessment, and execution of price modifications, both increases and decreases, under the multiple award schedule program. What would you like to see that framework look like, and, and how would it work, Roger? Um, I think the important thing is, is, first and foremost, is a statement from um, GSA's management, whether it's policy folks or whoever. There's lots of flexibilities that GSA already, that contracting officers have in place now. They can waive ceilings on economic price adjustment clauses. They can, uh, you know, some of it is just picking up the tempo and the pace of actually executing modifications and not holding them hostage in a certain sense to, to increasing it. But it's a, an affirmative statement about the flexibilities and streamlining that first and foremost, then tackling, you know, the processing of these by, by working with contracting officers to try to execute them more quick. If they, folks need help, get them the help. I mean, those are the things I and talk to industry about it, I think would be very helpful about so that there's a greater sensitivity in the acquisition workforce about what what contractors are facing. And it's consistent, too, with the administrator's, uh, you know, fall conference, our fall conference, she talked a lot about partnership. This is an opportunity for, for us to partner together. I'm not implying by using this language that the uh, contracting base is part of the problem, but is there uh, room for industry to be part of the solution here rather than just asking for remedy? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think part of it is educating, you know, the government on the cost associated um, that they're seeing increase and what does it mean and what does it look like down the road? I don't, I don't think a six temporary six month price increase is reasonable. But at the same time, if you you, you have to remember the schedule prices uh, are a starting point for negotiation. And if you don't provide that you know, and address those margins, you're not giving contractors the ability to, you know, compete and provide better value at the task order level in the future. Um, and, and, you know, that's where the, you know, industry at the end of the day, where the rubber meets the road. Um, but I, I do think it's a, it's a conversation that in the government industry can have together about what the market looks like and how we can work together to address it. I appreciate that you have spoken a lot about the potential solutions that already exist, Roger. Are there things that would help this changes in the schedule program or something else that don't exist now, things that don't exist today that would make this easier, that would streamline this, that would prevent it from happening again, anything like that? Or do we have all the resources we need now to solve the inflation problem for both agencies and the vendors? Um. I think the biggest, first of all, I'd get rid of the, you know, the, the, the old pricing policies and, you know, move completely to transactional data reporting um, across the schedules program, which I think GSA is doing in any event. And secondly, I think the biggest thing that GSA could do right now, just long term, let's talk long term for a second, is training of the acquisition workforce. Currently, GSA doesn't have like, an in-person training on price negotiations and how, you know, and how the market really works and what the commercial market looks like and an analysis of pricing in that market. You know, first step would be GSA to develop that type of support for its contracting workforce, bringing folks together and do that kind of training. I think that would be a huge benefit. There's been a lot of turnover in the acquisition workforce and that would be a huge, huge benefit for, for contractors, for customer agencies and for GSA at the end of the day. Roger Waldron, great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Francis. You can read what Roger's writing about inflation in contracting in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The new Zero Trust strategy includes a series of deadlines agencies have to meet. The metrics those deadlines are attached to will force agencies to show the progress they're making on implementing the administration's cyber executive order. Jonathan Fibus is Chief Information Security Officer at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. In the latest episode of the video series, Zero Trust begins with smarter password protection. Fibus says collaboration is key to meet the spirit and the letter of the EO. Well, we are working with uh, our counterparts at CISA and DHS and OMB to ensure that we have adequate budget and that we prioritize our projects appropriately to bring in the, uh, the requirements of the cyber executive order. Um, we've had to move around a few priorities based on the new uh, requirements. And um, other than that, these are things that we've been working on for years, uh, learning the lessons uh, uncovered by the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program, CDM, looking at the tools, figuring out who is on our network, what software they're using, and what they should be doing on our network. So mostly business as usual, just a few slight changes in scheduling. What's the remote work environment look like for you and how has that impacted the way that you're considering security, not just now, 
but for what security might look like depending how the remote work environment shifts, doesn't shift, continues, doesn't continue in the future. So mobility has been a hallmark of the NRC's uh, information technology program for years. We've got users working from various mobile devices, tablets, phones, laptops, from various places across the country and internationally. So it's not been much of an issue for us. We've had to do some fine tuning to figure out the balance of where people are uh, in the office, at home, hybrid. Um, but other than that, it's been small tweaks rather than major uh, reprogramming of our programs. Has it changed anything in particular about identity management or multi-factor authentication, the way that you authenticate and user getting onto the system? Not really. We've been working with multi-factor authentication for a long time. Uh, the Homeland Security Presidential Directive 12 had us working with the uh, PIV cards for years, and uh, we've just strengthened up uh, where we've needed to and uh, done fixes where we have challenges with users forgetting a card and needing a temporary credential. Uh, discussion around malware has gotten bigger and bigger all across government. Usually the way that finds its way onto systems is through phishing uh, expeditions. Uh, what have you seen as far as phishing incidents and what are you doing to help educate your employees to understand the dangers and the ways that they might be taken advantage of in a phishing expedition? So our cybersecurity program has had a huge component of training, education, and awareness. We've been trying to move away from education into awareness so users are more aware of what's going on, both on their home computers and personal devices, as well as what's happening here in the office. Having a user who is more skeptical of potential phishing uh, deals that are too good to be true, websites that promise miracles, uh, is a benefit both to our users at home, to their families, and to our work environment. So our phishing training exercises, our cybersecurity awareness have been uh, increasing by leaps and bounds. And we find that our users are much more comfortable coming to us, talking about things that they've seen, which helps us remodel our uh, educational activities for the future. Is that why your strategy is moving away from an, an educational mode and more into a defense mode? That's exactly right. Uh, education is great, but it doesn't make the things real that we need our users to be aware of. And we don't want it to be something that they're thinking about passing for an annual compliance score. We want them thinking about how they can be better network citizens. What are you doing about passwords themselves? What uh, tools do your employees have to learn how to manage them more effectively? Um, changing them often, making them difficult to figure out, even by uh, spamware, that kind of thing, John? Well, the biggest thing we've done is work on multi-factor authentication, uh, especially phishing-resistant credentials. Having those in place has reduced the number of passwords we have as more of our applications and services require the use of those federated authenticators. Um, just having fewer passwords makes it easier for users to remember things. Focusing on changing as needed as opposed to trying to come up with a compliance schedule that's every 60 to 90 days, which makes things more difficult to remember. Uh, and getting away from having users needing to write things down has been our main focus. So the more applications, the more services we can get into that multifunct multi-factor authenticator, 
the better off all of our users are and the more prepared we are for zero trust. Jonathan Fibus, the Chief Information Security Officer at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. You can find a link to watch the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms if you've already rated the show on your platform of choice. Thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C., James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The next Daily Scoop podcast is Tuesday. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening. 